with nonprofit organizations, they're dealing with the same things as the for-profit organizations, but they have less money. And plus a lot of nonprofit organizations and even kind of specifically, I would say human services and education right now are dealing with so much burnout that they're really having a hard time keeping employees or having people show up every day. That's Sally Loftus, the managing director at Loftus Partners, a 100% women-owned human resource consulting firm located in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Loftus Partners specializes in strategy, people, facilitation, and pay justice. In fact, Sally completed her master's thesis in just that, pay equity in nonprofits. You're listening to Dear Human Resources, and I'm your host, Marie-Lynne Germain. In this episode, we're going to talk about HR and consulting, some do's, some don'ts, and how to start an HR consulting practice. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So as obvious as the answer may be, can you tell us what a HR consultant actually does? Definitely. And I will say I'm an external HR consultant because sometimes the term HR consulting can be used internally to businesses. It, you know, they may be identified as a HR business partner, but I'm an external HR consultant. So what a consultant in that space does is it's a person or a group of people who are providing different, what I would call lanes of human resources guidance and support for businesses. And as you know, HR is a broad field. So an HR consultant may work in one particular area, you know, such as learning and development. They may focus on multiple areas at once. Like I focus a lot on pay and talent strategy, or they may work across the field. So how did you decide to become an HR consultant? Well, I had worked in the field for about 25 years. My undergraduate degree is actually in human resources management and had worked in HR for the last 25 years. And so while working on my master's degree in organization development a few years ago, I felt like it was time to maybe practice HR outside the business because I had always or mostly had been internal. And I was really interested in starting my own business because I wanted to focus a little bit more on pay equity. What would you say the upsides, but also the downsides of HR consulting are? We could probably talk way long just about this question alone, but as an external consultant, the upsides include the autonomy of your work. And this, of course, me speaking from having my own business, but I get to kind of choose my focus areas. So if there are parts of HR where I don't have as much experience or don't enjoy maybe working in that space, I don't necessarily have to do it. Obviously, externally, you have more of a flexible schedule. You can kind of choose your own hours. And then I personally like the personal accountability. I am my own boss. You know, I'm kind of making the final decisions. I also really enjoy working with lots of different clients across the globe. So there's a lot of variety. And while clients have similarities, no single business is the same. So the work is different each time, which definitely makes my schedule and my days different, which I personally enjoy. And then I also craft small teams of subcontract consultants for each client. So I enjoy getting to choose the team I work with. So those are a few of the upsides. The downsides for me owning my own HR consulting firm include starting your own business. While it's been great and I've loved it, there's certainly a financial risk. And it's not just the initial one, but it's really building the pipeline of clients to the point where you're sustaining yourself. And typically people say starting your own business, it takes three to five years. 
to turn a profit. So that's definitely a big piece. What I'm learning is kind of the personal accountability as well. While, you know, I'm the final decision maker, at the end of the day, I'm the final decision maker. You know, no one else is responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's my name on the door. And of course, there's a liability risk if anything went wrong. And then, of course, a lot of my personal reputation is part of this because referrals are kind of tied up in the work I'm doing and have done. So, you know, kind of personally, I have to know kind of my brand and how I'm presenting. I will say, as someone who used to be on the inside of HR at an organization, it's difficult to see my internal HR contact within an organization treated differently than me, because sometimes people just want to listen to a consultant more than they want to listen to the HR person internally. So I certainly feel pain for clients. And then, of course, kind of the biggest downside is when you make really good recommendations and do really good work and the client decides not to do it. That doesn't happen very often at this. For me, I haven't had a ton of those experiences, but it's certainly happens. So I'm a professor in a master's in HR at Western Mm -hmm. Carolina University, and I teach some HR consulting courses. And we work with clients remotely Mm -hmm. from all over the the US and, and actually abroad. And we can see very clearly the differences working with for profit clients versus non profit clients. But mm-hmm. I'd like to hear from you about what you think the main differences are between consulting for a for profit versus a non profit organization. Definitely. You know, in my master's program, we did something similar as well. We did consulting with different groups, for profits, nonprofits, and then we ended in 2020. So we got to do globally remote. So I certainly understand that. And I do think you can see the differences pretty quickly. In my experience, for profit organizations have a much clearer focus on ROI, return on investment for consulting. They're much more about deliverables, very clear data. They want to concise picture of how the consulting work will help them improve profitability and performance. And a lot of times, for-profit businesses tend to work with bigger consulting firms because the scope of work is so big. Occasionally, you can get into like a bigger for-profit and maybe do work with a team or a department, but a lot of times, they're hiring the big consulting firms in there. And uh, for me, I tend to work with smaller for-profit organizations or small businesses because I do a lot more individualized work with groups. So that's, you know, again, that's a generalized picture. Not It, it doesn't fit every organization, but that's mostly what I see. With nonprofit organizations, they're dealing with the same things as the for-profit organizations, but they have less money. And, you know, plus a lot of nonprofit organizations and even kind of specifically, I would say human services and education right now are dealing with so much burnout that they're really having a hard time keeping employees or having people show up every day. So for me, approaching the work is a little bit different in that space because there's not as many resources. There may not be, you know, for instance, working virtually, there may not be as much technology capability, you know, and then nonprofits also receive funding from foundations and individual donors and grants that may not support the work of staff engagement, especially around pay and benefits, which is what I work in. So that's certainly difficult. There's a lot more, I feel like, uh, players that have control than kind of a contained corporation. So among other specializations, your firm focuses on pay equity. Can you tell us how you go about ensuring that organizations reduce salary disparities among employees. 
I will say pay equity is a topic that's becoming more and more popular right now for several reasons. One big one here in the United States is that there are a lot of pay transparency laws that are coming online. Uh, There are several states and large cities in the United States who've implemented those in the last two years. And I think that will continue to grow. And what happens is when people start posting the salary ranges or pay ranges in a job, other people in the organization start seeing what other people are making. And so conversations start happening. So when I talk about pay equity, I just I do want to recognize it's a pretty broad topic. So let me define what I'm, you know, what I mean when I'm saying pay equity. It's really looking at how people are paid across the organization at different levels. And This has really come to the forefront as in the last few years, um, the pandemic has brought forth a lot of frontline workers aren't making enough money to meet the cost of living. Um, Again, and this is U.S. focused, but certainly applies to other countries around the world and that there's some systemic inequities. So one is thinking about the cost of living in the United States. You know, we've seen entry level wages rise I would say significantly, not as much as they need to, but for instance, I'll just use fast food workers. You know, three or four years ago, they might have made eight to ten to twelve dollars an hour, depending on where you live. Now it's pretty common to see twelve to twenty dollars an hour for that kind of job. So kind of that front line has increased. And then senior leadership pay has increased because the labor market has been up and down. And so what's happened is that the people between those levels, between kind of frontline and senior leadership, have fallen behind in their pay because they haven't been brought up as quickly. And that's called salary compression. And so what we will do is we'll go in with organizations and they may kind of think they have this going on or employees may be giving feedback Um, in surveys or groups or whatever saying, I have to leave the organization to make more money. That's a definite sign of salary compression. So we'll go in and help them start looking at their pay data, breaking it down by, you know, um, gender, race and ethnicity, age. Um, We'll look at, um, you know, tenure and things like that. And it'll start tracking pretty quickly. Typically the people who have the shortest tenures are the one that have a lot of pay issues, whether it's compression or maybe they need to be paid more or aren't able to progress. So that's kind of a a detailed example of what we do. But a lot of times we start with the pay equity assessment where we go in and look at that data because what is helpful about that process is it creates conversations that may need to happen. So no pay equity assessment looks the same for any of my clients, sometimes it's they're realizing, you know, I've had one client where we just looked at the data and we couldn't answer some of the questions because they just didn't have any feedback loops with their employees. Mm -hmm. Like they literally weren't measuring anything. You know, another one realized that maybe they were paying more than the market and we're figuring out that people maybe were staying because they couldn't get paid the same at a different organization. And so there created some complacency there, you know, and like there's another organization where they realize they need to raise their minimum pay in the organization and then raise it at every level at the same pace. So they didn't create salary compression. 
So that's just a little bit about it. I will say one thing that I worked on in my thesis with the organization development degree was really looking at a couple of things. There wasn't a lot of research from frontline workers in this area, especially in nonprofits. A lot of times people tend to pay for like senior leadership development. And then the other piece was seeing how much cost of living based on where you are geographically can make a huge difference and is really a driver of diversity, equity, inclusion. Because if you're paying below the cost of living in your city, then that's going to limit the kind of candidates that are going to come into your talent pipeline and eventually join your organization and hopefully stay. But it limits you on the very front end. So discussing that and looking at it really kind of opens some new doors. So. What advice would you give to HR professionals who may be considering starting their own HR consulting firms? Yeah, I get asked this a lot. So I will share the bits of wisdom that people have shared with me over the years. And making the leap to consultancy can certainly be difficult because I see some people who will be working, you know, internally to organization and want to go to consultancy, and that consulting firm will want them to have shown some kind of experience in consulting. So trying to get that experience and stay in your current job is difficult. So I typically will tell people, one, is see if you can, if it's possible, this is not possible for everyone, but see if you can kind of do some volunteer consulting or maybe if you know somebody has a consulting firm, see if you can do like a little side paid internship with them to kind of get that experience, you know, just kind of start small. Um, Because not everybody can make that leap at first. And of course, making that leap, you know, for me, starting my own firm was a big financial investment and risk up front and not everybody's at that space. So for me, I volunteered with some nonprofit organizations virtually. I asked a fellow consultant if I could shadow them on a short-term project. And these are just little ways you can kind of get some little wins under your belt is what I would say, and some feedback from clients. And for me, you know, even in the HR sector, um, there's a lot you can do in the HR sector. So it's really trying to figure out kind of what parts you really want to be focusing on and that really are going to ignite your passion to come to work every day. So that's kind of how I focused on pay equity, although it's not all that I do, but it's certainly there. So I would say kind of one is start small, I would say two is get connected with other consultants in the industry. And I would say any consultants, I had a really great mentor of mine, encouraged me to start meeting with one to two people every week for like years. And I still try to do that. It's not as frequently, but really asking other consultants about what are they enjoying about consulting? What would they do differently? You know, buy them a coffee or lunch. Of course, when I was doing this, it was all pandemic. So it was, you know, (laughs) virtual, but take time to reflect on what you learned from them. Like, was there anything that they said that resonated with them? And kind of the third piece is really just reflect on your career thus far, however long, short, or whatever it's looked at. Ask your informal and informal network about your best work. Like, when have they seen you shine? When are you the happiest and engaged? And kind of getting really clear on yourself, that self-work is super important because that completely shines through in your consulting. You're going to bring your full self to that. So half of consulting is not bringing your own baggage into the room with the client. So you need to know how you show up and what triggers you so that you can become a really good consultant. And that's really 
a lifetime of work. It's not an afternoon activity, but it's really a lifetime of reflection. Any professional organizations you can recommend people might want to join or get in contact mm-hmm. with? I did a lot of volunteering through Catch a Fire and Taproot. Those are both spaces where you can volunteer with nonprofits and they match you up. And what was great about Catch a Fire is I could do anything from like a one hour organizational strategy call to a multi-week project and it was all virtual. So that was helpful for me to kind of do a lot of different kinds of things there to build understand your own portfolio. What I enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To understand what I enjoyed, to hear direct feedback, what I was saying, whether it was resonating. And then organizations, you know, I live in a remote mountain area, not too dissimilar from where Western Carolina is. <laughs> and so we don't have a lot of professional organizations around here. So that was difficult. So for me, I've really stayed connected to the alumni network where I got my master's degree and have really, mm-hmm. you know, we had a cohort model, have stayed connected there. I keep my membership to the Society of Human Resource Management because it's such a great resource, but there aren't any really local chapters of associations or anything nearby for me mm-hmm. to kind of go to a monthly meeting. So Sally, your company is 100% women-owned. Was that a deliberate choice? Uh, and if it is, or if it was, why? Absolutely deliberate. We need more women in every area of the workforce, and we need more women-owned businesses. And so starting my own business was one part of my greater contribution, you know, to the workforce. And I was able to get certified as a government-certified woman-owned small business. And so I'm always looking for ways to support women. And so um, that's really a key part of my work. I do a lot of training for women And I just think it's really important for us to be in decision-making roles. That's a very good point. And you're right. We need more uh, women-owned businesses and and those that are recognized, as you you mentioned, yours is. Thank you, Sally, for your insights. It was great to uh, have you on this show. You and my students will appreciate your insights. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing with future consultants and HR people. Support for this show comes from Western Carolina University, a campus of the University of North Carolina system, with the technical assistance of Kelly Minnis.